Thomas Hunter was born on June 12th of 1996. He was the last of four boys born to Bill and Claire Hunter. He was a mere 11 years old at the time that his life was stolen from him. Bill and Claire deciding to have a child later in life as Bill was 52 years old and Claire was 44, had given them both the gift that only a child can give, which is the feeling of eternal youth. As a young child refuses to accept no for an answer when they want to engage and be entertained and loved. There was a significant gap between Tom and all of his older brothers, the closest in age being Jeff, who was 20 and was attending college at the University of Nebraska at the time of his murder. His brother Robert was 22 and he was living in New York City. And his oldest brother, Timothy, was 25 and he was living in Washington State. Tom, he was the baby of the family. And after Jeff left for college, Tom became somewhat of an only child and that a majority of Bill and Claire's attention would be focused on Tom. Claire and Bill Hunter adored their little boy, who was exceptionally bright, funny, and sweet, mixed in with a little bit of a rebellious side. He excelled in math and science, and at the end of fourth grade, he had transferred from Dundee Elementary to the King Science and Technology Center in order to be able to focus more heavily on what interested Tom academically. All of his sixth grade teachers said that Tom was an above average student. He was quick-witted. He had all the potential in the world. His buddies from school said Tom loved music, in particular, the band Green Day, and of course, video gaming. He was just a nice kid. In other words, Tom Hunter was just your average all-American kid who loved his family, had lots of friends, loved gaming and sports, and was just getting to the point in his life when girls were starting to grab his attention. And all that I've learned about this sweet kid, what really hit home and made me feel the impact of just how young he was and how he had his entire life in front of him with endless possibilities was that two of his friends had said that on his last day on earth, March 13th of 2008, that word around school had spread like wildfire. That Tom had asked another sixth grader, a girl named Abby, to be his girlfriend. The thought of this young man brimming with the joy and excitement of young love, getting on the bus, feeling as if he were on top of the world, and to have it all end on this day, like this, is just too much for anyone to bear. A loss like this is not only felt by parents and grandparents and siblings, extended family, friends, teachers, but it's also felt by the community because we all lose a bit when a child is lost in a manner like this. And after the initial shock and horror sinks in, two questions come to the forefront. Who and why? It is these two questions that Omaha police will be focusing on almost exclusively in the early stages of the investigation because there are two victims and no readily apparent motive first glance. Could Tom have been the target of the killer? He was just a boy. Is it possible that someone could harbor such a murderous grudge against an innocent boy? And for what? If Tom was merely a victim of circumstance and was in the wrong place at the wrong time and surely Sherman was the target? 
the burning question still remains. Who and why? This was not Shirley's home. Who could possibly have known that she would be there on this particular day? Did the killer know so little about their victims that Shirley could have been thought to have been Claire Hunter? At this point, so very close in time to the commission of the crime, it's not just law enforcement that is trying to understand, it's everybody in Omaha. Most significantly, the Hunters and the Shermans. Jeff Hunter immediately left Lincoln to head home the minute he found out about his brother's murder. And this is where his mind was initially when he spoke with the police on March 13th. Um, so let's just start. Yeah, spell your last name for me again. H-U-N-T-E-R. And spell your first name. J-E-F-F. I was I was pretty upset, so it was pretty quiet. I mean, we t- I mean, I was just I was pissed off most of all, so I was kind of angry. So it's you know, I was just kind of like I I still had my cleats on. I remember I was waiting. I broke the the dead pedal in my car, so I was kicking in. I just remember I was extremely angry. So it's kind of, I don't know. This may sound dumb to you, but it's just a question I want to ask you, okay? Explain why you were angry as opposed to any other emotion. Because this little, my little brother got killed for no reason. What about Shirley? How well did you know Shirley? Um, well, when she started, I think I was out of high school, I think, or right before I got out of high school. So I'd be there something, you know, when she's there, I'd be there during the day. And she kind of talked to me. You know, she she just, she just talked a lot. So I kind of just, I don't know. I, I always had, I mean, it sounds bad now, but I was always kind of suspicious. I don't know, I just didn't really, something set me off about her. What was that? And I just, because we were used to our old, you know, the lady we had for 20 years. And then all of a sudden there's this new lady. She's got a key to our house, you know, can just, you know. Did you not like that? Yeah, I, I, I always told my parents, I just, you know, because I didn't, I mean, I didn't think they needed a, person clean the house because why do you think they hired her for such a limited role because they don't want to clean they want to keep the house presentable you know they don't they're all working a lot so they don't have time to clean like my mom can't just go around you know the little stuff that's what all you know she would do is you know clean the floors stuff like that how was she with tom I mean, I don't. I was never really around when she was with Tom, but you know, she's just talkative. She, you know, she tried to talk to Tom. You see, she plays games. She ever tried to parent? She ever kind of? No, she left, left us on her own pretty much. So you wouldn't say she was ever like verbal, verbally abusive or anything towards Tom or you? She ever have people over at the house? She would bring some people to help her clean sometimes. Like there's one lady she brought kind of regularly. Not all the time, but, you know, 
I've, I've seen her multiple times. I, was, I don't remember her name, but she's kind of an older lady too. And then she brought her son once. I think it was her son, grandson maybe. Yeah, I think it was grandson, helped her clean once. And did they actually help clean? For the most part, I mean, I saw them doing stuff. Anybody else besides people that she would clean with just show up looking around or anything like that? Mm-hmm. And then the the weekend when my parents were in Hawaii with my little brother, I came home on a Thursday night and it was like eight o'clock at night and she was still there. And that kind of threw me off too. When was that? The third when they were in Hawaii, I can't remember exactly. But she was cleaning. I mean, she still had just, but it was just because it was eight o'clock at night and I just walked in the door and she's. I'm like, what the fuck, man? Mm-hmm. Was she alone? Yeah. When you walk in, did she seem startled? Yeah. But she was, you know, she's an old lady, a dark house, you know, big house at night. I mean, I couldn't see that. Because she startled me when I walked up the driveway and saw her car there. I was like, you know. And then I, cause she was in the kitchen, I think, and I opened the door because it was locked. But, as, and not to change kind of subject a little bit, but when she's there, what what are her duties? What does she usually do there? Um, well, I think the main thing that my parents have her, ask her to do is just, you know, clean up most of the floors, vacuum, and then she kind of does her own little projects of cleaning this room one day, one week, and then next week she'll clean another room. Does she do laundry? No. She might throw, like, you know, bath rugs down in the laundry room. Does she ever strip beds? Yeah, she changed the beds, yeah. She changed sheets? Yeah, that was one of the things she always did. Okay. And she'd do the, she'd take the trash out and she would uh, just like start the dishwasher, put dishes away. Hmm. Did you I mean, obviously I know what your folks do. Okay. Um, did your folks ever leave like valuables, money, maybe Checking, checking account statements, bank statements, anything laying around that somebody could see if they came into the house? Um, my dad keeps all his stuff in that desk in the basement. And he's in the drawers, got all his files, everything. And then my mom has her jewelry just sitting on her dresser. And then, but, and then my dad would leave money for Shirley sitting out every, you know, when she came. But would you ever, would you ever, was it odd if you'd like come up and see like a bank statement with a, a balance in the bank or Something I, that, that would attract I, attention. I wouldn't think that'd be odd if I saw it at my dad's desk. Because, you know, he kind of just has stuff laying around there. And that's part of the area that people would be cleaning his Yeah, she would be down there cleaning, yeah. Okay. Jeff, do you feel like maybe Shirley's part of the reason for this? I do, yeah. There's something to do with her. Are you feeling resentment towards her because of that? Um, not, not towards her, um, How would you describe it? It's just, I feel like, you know, if she had, I, I feel that if they hadn't hired her, my little brother would still be alive, to put it simply. So the initial instinct of Jeff is that it could only be Shirley that was the target because there doesn't seem to be any set of circumstances that would lead one to believe that the killer was coming after Tom. Will Omaha PD be of the same mindset? Let's dig in. 
Mata, and this is episode three. Eye for an eye witness. We left off on March 13th of 2008. Bill Hunter had walked into his home after work to discover the unthinkable. By 8 p.m., Omaha PD had secured the crime scene and Bill was at the station for questioning. And homicide detectives and evidence techs had descended on the Hunter's home to begin to try and make sense of what happened. At 9.10 p.m., Detective Derek Moise has a search warrant in hand and is about to scour the crime scene for any clues that might provide some answers. Now, if you listen to season one of Defense Diaries, then you are aware that what is about to occur in the Hunter's home is going to be the collection of evidence. And with that is the creation of a chain of custody by the texts that are following Moise around as he indicates items of potential evidentiary value to be collected and cataloged. You all know how important the chain of evidence is in a criminal case, as we have made it a focus in season one. A vast difference between this case and the Gacy case is that the entire search of the home pursuant to warrant, both inside and outside, is being videotaped. The use of this standard operating procedure by Omaha PD eliminates the opportunity for law enforcement to plant evidence and thereby effectively counters any potential issues that may be raised down the road by defense counsel when and if an arrest is made. So early on, at least, the chain of custody as to the evidence that's collected at the Hunter's residence will be relatively bulletproof if the matter goes to trial. Will this be the case as the investigation continues? Only time will tell. And if such is not the case, you can be guaranteed of one thing. I will most certainly be telling you about it. But I digress. Moise and Officer Sullivan, along with three evidence techs, enter the home to get to work. Immediately upon entering the house, Moise observes both Shirley Sherman and Tom Hunter's bodies in the same positions that they were discovered by Bill Hunter hours earlier. It does not matter how long one has been doing police work. A cop never becomes desensitized to seeing that a child has been murdered. Never. A pit forms in Moise's stomach as he looks at Tom's lifeless body, laying face down in a pool of his own blood, with a knife sticking out of the side of his neck. And like any parent, he immediately thinks of his own family and the weight of just how unfathomable what he was looking at envelops his mind. He instructs the techs that are there. They're going to start at the top of the house and they're going to work their way down. All five of the officers are wearing latex gloves and footies as the collection of evidence commences. Moist leads the party up to the attic bedroom where Tom was asleep this morning. He takes note of what he observes, which is a 12 by 20 room with medium blue carpeting and light blue walls. After careful examination of the room, Moist determines that there is nothing of evidentiary value in the room. The upper level of the house consists of the stair landing area as well as four bedrooms. Nothing of a value is located on the landing. So they proceed to look at the bedrooms, starting with the master. Moise observes that there is a sleigh-styled wood-framed twin bed and nothing else of note. They move on to the office and den area, which once again provides nothing of evidentiary value. It's becoming clear that whatever took place in this home did not appear to make its way upstairs. Moist then checks the southeast guest bedroom. He notes the furnishing, yet only one item in the room piques his interest, which is a Mac computer tower. 
He asks the techs to tag it and collect it, which they do. The team then inspects the northwestern bedroom of the home, which nets, again, zero evidence. Finally, Moist makes his way to Tom's bedroom. His first observation is that Tom's room is a mess, like most 11-year-old kids' rooms are. He also notes that there's a rabbit cage with a black rabbit contained within. Moist goes and picks through the room, and the only item of value that he has the team collect is another computer. This time, it's a Power Mac G4 Cube, which is connected to a monitor. He directs the techs once again to collect and document it. There are two bathrooms located on the second level, neither of which produced any items of value. Moist then makes his way down to the basement level. In the basement office, Moist directs the techs to collect another Mac computer and an external hard drive, a black leather computer satchel which contains an Apple laptop and an Olympus digital voice recorder, and finally, a thumb drive. All the items are collected and assigned EV numbers. They then enter the family room within the basement. Moist sees that the JVC TV is on and the screen is displaying a dialogue box which states, Notice, player kicked. He also notices that the screen is indicating that Tom was on Xbox Live. Game is in play, except the game was paused in mid-play. Moist instructs the text to disconnect the Xbox 360 and to collect it. Moist also finds a Nintendo Wii, which is also collected. The team searches the rest of the basement and finds nothing else that is of value. Moist does note the suspected blood seeping through the drop ceiling, yet he knows where it's coming from. So at this point, he doesn't have the text, note, and collect any of the blood. So while Moist and the evidence team are busy combing the inside of the house for evidence, outside of the house, Officer Baker and Cardenas are assigned to canvas the area to interview potential witnesses. The first witness that Baker interviews is Dana Boyle, who lives directly across the street from the Hunters. She tells Baker that at 2.50 p.m., she saw little Thomas get off the bus and saw him in the front yard. She recalls that he was wearing a dark-colored shirt and shorts. She tells Baker that she remembers this because when she saw Tom, she thought to herself, oh, little Tommy's wearing shorts. Boyle then continues, stating that at about 3.20, that she was walking westbound on 54th Street. And at that point, she saw a light blue or grayish blue small SUV parked on the northwest corner of 54th. She described the vehicle as a crossover type SUV. She also noticed that the plates on the vehicle appeared to have some pink in it and some type of arch style writing or design in the center. She tells Baker that she became aware of the vehicle because the driver was sitting very close to the steering wheel and that the vehicle was proceeding very, very slowly as it approached the hunter's home. She also noted that it was, quote, breaking and stopping as if it was looking for an address, end quote. Then it stopped, and the man in the vehicle appeared to be looking up the driveway of the residence. She tells Baker that the man seemed to be familiar with the residence and that he continued northbound and stopped just north of the hunter's house and seemed to be looking between the hunter's house and the neighboring property. Boyle then describes the man that she saw in the vehicle. Hello? 
some reason, I made a judgment about this guy being a medical student president. Mm -hmm. There could have been glasses. There had to have been something that gave me that judgment besides driving slow and his age to think why, why did I think he was a smart person? So there may have been glasses on him. Um, and I do remember it was short hair. It was a sh short hair. I don't remember sideburns. Um, and for some reason I put him, I also made a judgment that day too as being a uh, someone from another country. I'm not saying it was not dark skin that I saw. It was something, there must have been something that made me think like Middle Eastern looking. Maybe a very light Hispanic, but very clean cut. A very, his hair had to have been very short because it was clean cut. Um, he did not look big. His face did not seem big to me. And all I got was a glyph and then back of the head and side profile. I got the glimpse coming around the corner, mm -hmm. and then we kept doing the side as he was looking for his dresses. And then I got the eyes in the rear view mirror, but I still can't recall if there were glasses or not. Um, he did not seem big. Didn't seem big? No. Okay. I would put him, if I was to guess the type from being in a car, now I know you can't tell from a car, but just like the body stature you know, would have been six foot or under, under. Okay. Um, well, when you, when you look at that, what about that sketch it looks like what you remember? It could have been a little bit of the eyebrows and maybe the eyes, but I know it was dark, like dark eyes. So it was something, and it maybe the nose. I don't remember a real pronounced nose. So does the nose on there look correct that you remember? Yeah, but maybe the way the cheek is, like, this doesn't look like the person I saw. Okay, what, I mean, what doesn't look like? Maybe the chin, maybe the lips. Tell me the difference. What, what makes it different that you remember? Bigger, smaller? The chin wasn't as pronounced. As the picture? Uh-huh. Okay. And what about the cheeks? Um, I don't remember full cheeks. Do you consider that photo having full cheeks? Right there. I don't know. There's something. Okay. And you said something about the nose. Is the nose what you remember on there, or is that? I don't know. I mean, I don't know if maybe the person I saw had glasses on, which made me think that there was a bigger nose. Um, I don't know. I mean, my the person that I remember seeing was, I mean, like I could say, maybe even Italian, uh, Hispanic, light Hispanic, Middle Eastern looking. I do recall saying that he had a, a bigger nose before, mm -hmm. but I mean, I can't tell if it's much different because it's been so long. And now that I've seen the sketch, it's harder. I don't remember the hairline though being that far back. I don't remember that big of a forehead. Okay, was it more 
smaller. Like, I don't know why, but I, I was, I, I put them at a, at a young age. I put them, you know, in mid twenties. Um, and you know, like Hispanic, Middle Eastern, he didn't have like a round, he didn't look scruffy. He didn't look dangerous. And I know that everyone's version of dangerous looking is different. He didn't look dangerous to me. He looked like a, a, a nice, decent, decent looking guy. Okay, that's okay. I don't want to be yeah. up, so. Um, you know, when I'm thinking about the car again, and you know, that means they keep going back to the Honda CRV, you know, it very easily could have been like a light, like a gray or light blue, smaller crossover type mm -hmm. vehicle. It might not have been as big as a, as a uh, CRV. Well, and the, they always go back to being in a CRV. And I don't. Well, Investigation shows certain things. Okay. There's other people that saw possibly the same vehicle. Okay. Well, not saying they saw a CRV, but possibly saw the same vehicle. Okay. That have had their relations to that kind of vehicle. Okay. So keep your keep your thoughts. Everything okay. that you tell me is documented. Okay. And then they all work together. Um, okay. So if if you don't know the type of vehicle, don't don't concern yourself with it. Okay. It's not it's not a big deal. Okay. And we can talk to multiple people that possibly saw the same vehicle. That's how we build that. Okay. So, okay? Okay. I find that very interesting. Dana Boyle has pegged the stranger as potentially being a med student or someone intelligent, but can't exactly put her finger on why. She didn't get a full front view of the stranger, and she thought him to be someone from a different country, maybe Middle Eastern or a light-skinned Hispanic. Baker asked Boyle if she would be able to identify the suspect or the vehicle that she observed. Boyle states truthfully that she's unsure if she'd be able to give a positive ID. She said she might be able to identify him if she was shown a side profile picture of him. Baker thanks Boyle and terminates the interview. So Boyle's statement creates a bit of a timeline here. Tom gets home at around 2.50, he goes in the house. Then at around 3.20, she notices the stranger in a car slowly creeping around the hunter's house. Baker then moves on to Boyle's next-door neighbor, Arlene Adelson. Now, both Adelson and Boyle live directly across the street from the hunters, so they have an excellent vantage point. Baker knocks on Adelson's door at approximately 8.48 p.m. Adelson answers and invites Baker in. She goes on to tell Baker that she was returning home in her vehicle from school sometime between 4 and 4.15 p.m. when she noticed the stranger walking southbound down Davenport Street. Now, Davenport Street is south of the Hunter's residence, so this would seem to indicate that the stranger was walking away from the Hunter's residence as opposed to towards it. Adelson describes the stranger as wearing a dark-colored suit and appeared to be 30-ish. She tells Baker that he had a rounded face and was around 5'8 to 5'9, and was a bit overweight, but not fat. Adelson tells Baker that the man she saw was a black male. Baker asks her how she knew that the man was black, and Adelson states that, quote, 
His hair was kind of nappy, not an afro, but not cropped to his head, end quote. Adelson then asks Baker if she knows what she means by the term nappy. Baker tells her, yes, I know what nappy means. Adelson circles back and reiterates that the stranger was stocky, not muscular, but not fat either. She goes on to say that the man did not look professional in his suit. What do you mean? Baker asks. Adelson doesn't directly answer the question, but says that the stranger was carrying a dark colored briefcase that did not appear oversized and that it didn't appear that whatever was contained inside was heavy. Adelson didn't believe that the man was wearing gloves, but couldn't be 100% certain of this fact. She says that the man was carrying the briefcase with his right hand. The stranger looked like he might have been a salesman or a Jehovah's Witness. She tells Baker that when she pulled into her driveway that she lost sight of the stranger. Baker asks her if she'd be able to identify the man if she saw him again. And much like Boyle, she's just not sure whether she'd be able to. Though, she says it's possible. So we're starting to see some of the issues that eyewitness accounts present. In a situation like this, where you just happen to notice someone that looks out of place, but isn't necessarily doing anything wrong at the time that you see them. But then you later learn that something nefarious has occurred. How much can you really remember? It's not as if at the time that you see them, that you realize that you need to commit this person's appearance to memory. It appears from both of these witnesses that they have a very general description of what the stranger looks like. But the primary fact that seems to be agreed upon is that the stranger is not Caucasian. Boyle has him either as a Middle Eastern or light-skinned Hispanic, and Adelson has him as a black man, which seems to be based less on the color of his skin and more on what his hair looked like. These varying descriptions will later be used by a police sketch artist. And my question is this. How does that sketch artist determine which features to apply to the sketch when multiple people are describing the same features differently? Baker then goes to another neighbor's home, a woman named Catherine Swanson. Swanson informs Baker that she is a stay-at-home mom and that between 3.45 and 4 o'clock p.m., both her four- and eight-year-olds were playing in the area that the neighborhood refers to as the pie. At this time, she leaves her home to go and retrieve her kids. When she notices a man walking southbound down the east side of 54th Street, Hunter Street, towards Davenport, Swanson took note of this man because, well, she has young children, and this man, quote, did not belong in the neighborhood, end quote. So she continued to monitor the man, but admits to Baker that she was far more concerned about reaching her children than she was in watching the man is completely understandable. She stated that once the suspect turned eastbound on Davenport, she was no longer concerned. Baker asked Swanson if she can describe the man. Swanson replies yes. He appeared to be approximately 20 to 40 years old, wow, and was wearing a suit. Baker asked Swanson if she can expound on what she means by suit, and she clarifies that he was wearing a dark-colored jacket and dark pants that he was carrying a dark-colored messenger bag. She believes that he was carrying the bag with a shoulder strap and that it was hanging down by his side. Baker asks her if she can recall if he was wearing a shirt and a tie. Swanson can't recall. 
She does recall, however, that the man appeared to be about 5'7 to 5'8. She also goes on to describe the man as an average-sized man, but clarifies that she's not good at determining weight. She says the man is not small, but he's not fat either. Swanson continues, quote, he appeared to be a white male who was dark-skinned or dark-complected, end quote, and thinks that he had dark hair. Like Arlene Adelson, Swanson, upon first blush, thought that the man was a door-to-door salesman or a Jehovah's Witness, which she states are not uncommon in the neighborhood. She was certain of one thing, though, and that was that this man did not belong in the neighborhood. Swanson also notices that his suit appeared to be too big for him, stating that it didn't look as if it belonged to him, or at the very least, it didn't fit him well. Baker then asked Swanson the same question that she asked Boyle and Adelson, which is, would she be able to recognize the man if she saw him again? Swanson, being completely honest, tells Baker no, because she was far, far more engrossed in watching her children and minding their location to make sure that they were not going to be snatched up by that man. Baker asks one final question, which was... How did she know the approximate time that she saw the man? And Swanson tells her that her son gets home from school at 3.30 and that he changed and had a snack. She believes that it was 15 minutes after that that she allows him to go outside and play. Baker thanks her and terminates the interview. So here's what we have so far. Adelson and Swanson seem to see the stranger walking away from the Hunter property between 3.45 and 4 p.m., which I think Swanson may be a bit early with, as her kid changed, ate a snack, and then asked to go and play. Now, if the boy had gotten home at around 3.30, this seems like that would have taken at least 15 minutes before he went and played. So we have to assume that she let him play for a while before she went to go get him. So I believe that 4 to 4.15 for Swanson's sighting is far more plausible and it lines up with when Adelson sees the stranger. Now, what that means to me is that Boyle and Paul Medine see the stranger before the murders take place at sometime between 3.20 and 3.40, and that Adelson and Swanson see the stranger post-murder, meaning that the killings must have taken place between 3.40 and 4.15 p.m. If, in fact, that it's the stranger who actually committed the murders. So that's where we sit by 9.20 p.m. on March 13th. Let's check back in with Detective Harout and Bill Hunter back at the station. Harout is now going to start to try to figure out the why part of this case as he begins questioning Bill about anyone that may potentially have a grudge with him or Claire or even Tom. Let's see what Bill Hunter is thinking at this point. any idea who or why somebody would do something like this. Honestly, I've been just racking my brain. I mean, I think of a very peaceful existence, uh, almost ridiculously simple. Uh, We're not being socialites. We don't, uh, now I I don't know if it's uh, Shirley related or 
Well, and we'll we'll look into her family too and see what we can find out. Um, naturally, we're going to have to try and locate them tonight as well and let them know what's going on. Um, and maybe there'll be some clues there. I don't know. Um, I don't know what her past is like, and it sounds like your past is, for the most part, fairly dull. You know, yeah, there's nothing. I know. I mean, um, no problems with uh, anybody demonstrating road rage and following you home recently. Nothing like that. No, no, no honestly, I, I don't think anything for my wife. How long has she been in Hawaii? She uh, left last uh, Sunday morning. Okay. And before that, she never talked about having any problems or being scared by anyone or followed home from work or anything like that. Is she at Creighton as well? Yes. So, okay. so great. Just, just. Well, we're, we're gonna. I can assure you that you have uh, a very dedicated group of people that are gonna do our best on this thing for you. One thing I noticed that is, uh, it looks like a, a knife in uh, Shirley's neck. Okay. That's our one of our state knives. We have a provide a counter. We have this little round thing with this knives in. Okay. It looks like I mean that was just very superficial when I was just in shock at seeing that and I was just okay. I just kinda of noticed that. Okay. Um, well well and if it is we'll 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 find out. I don't mean someone was in there. Does she have a tendency when she's cleaning to leave doors with like the back yeah. door open to yeah. air things out? Or? I mean, and she would, I don't think she, and maybe if it's real cold, she'll, she'll okay. shut and I mean, the door was probably shut, but probably not locked. Okay. Because I've come, you know, every once in a while, when, if I come home when she's there, I, you know, the door is unlocked. So. You know, the, the only other questions I had too are, when's the last time your other sons lived at the house? Uh, well, Jeff, I mean, um, you know, during the summer, he was here. Okay. Uh, all the Christmas break. Both Jeff and Rob were home for Christmas break. Okay. Rob, Rob works in New York City, uh, and he spent a week here uh, uh, at Christmas time. Do you know if they were having any problems with anybody? <laughs> and and Rob, Rob has been... He went to Lincoln for a couple of years, and then he spent a year in Scotland, and then and he's been in New York since the summer. So, and, I mean, he has acquaintances here, but I, you know, see him all the time. Jeff, likewise, has some buddies here in town. He's a rugby player. He went to Central, and Central rugby team. Some of their those guys are still. Uh, here in town, so frequently when he comes home, he goes over to their house, or, which is nearby. Uh, Have you had any suspicions of um, the boys using drugs, drugs, gambling issues? My, my usual, my my only. Concern and worry many times is Jeff because he likes his beer. 
20 years old. So, yeah. Typical teenager. I mean, to me, he's a exactly. teenager. Right. But he's pretty sensible, too. He knows about, um, he won't, if he's been drinking, he won't drive. He'll walk home or call me. In the same way, he's been the designated driver for some of his buddies. So he's pretty sensible. He's responsible. Also, also, yeah. I hope. And the same personal question. Are you having any trouble with gambling? Your wife? Did you? No, we don't. I don't gamble. I don't, I don't think my wife does. Well, I think and we don't have, And we don't have money. I mean, we don't have money problems. Okay. Well, and the re I mean, naturally, the bookies and the, the drug addicts and the drug dealers, and I mean, those can be issues with you know, kids their age. Sure. I, Bill Hunter, at this juncture, doesn't have a clue who would have a reason to kill his son, or Shirley for that matter. The cops may be done questioning Bill Hunter on this night, but they are not done with him for good. No, not by a long shot. Back at the Hunter's residence, Moise has now moved to the main floor. He starts at the back door and he instructs the techs to take a DNA swab from both the exterior and interior storm door handles. He also has them collect swabs from both the exterior and interior handle of the main door of the rear entrance. Moist then moves to the female victim located in the hallway that connects the front and rear entrances of the home. He describes the victim as a deceased white female, approximately 50 years of age. The decedent appears to be wearing a blue print bandana, skull cap style, over her hair. The victim also appears to be wearing gold rim eyeglasses. She also appears to be wearing sweatpants, pink in color, along with white socks and white athletic shoes. Moist notes that the victim is lying in an east to west orientation with her head lying towards the east and the feet lying to the west. The victim is laying prone with her right leg bent in an approximately 45 degree angle. The victim's left arm appears to be slightly bent behind her back and her right arm lying down on her side, palm facing up. Moise observes suspected blood emanating from beneath the victim's head and onto the wooden floor surface beneath her. Moise also notices protruding from the right side of the decedent's neck a stainless steel, gray accented knife handle. The blade of the aforementioned knife appears to be completely obscured from view. Additionally, on the back panel of the victim's blue short-sleeved t-shirt, Moist notices an unidentified, apparently biological substance. Moist notes in his report that the back panel of the aforementioned shirt of the victim was cut and removed to protect the integrity of the unidentified substance. Moist tells the techs to swab the knife handle for a potential DNA. Moist also notices on the southern wall of the main level hallway, immediately south of the victim, numerous circular discolorations of suspected blood. This area, too, is swabbed for DNA purposes. Additional swabs are collected from the trim piece, the east side of the lower level, and from the guest bath door encasement. Moist also instructs the text to swab the hallway closet door on the south wall. Moist then enters the kitchen dining area where he observes, located at the center of the table, a Nokia flip cellular phone, which, of course, is collected. He also observes a brown leather purse, later identified to be that 
of Shirley Sherman. Additionally, located within the purse itself is an envelope containing cash totaling $883, all of which are collected, photographed, and cataloged. Near the western end of the aforementioned circular dining table, a black and white youth backpack is located and collected. Also found is a pair of black and white Puma athletic type shoes and a pair of ankle length white Adidas socks, which are both collected and cataloged. Moist notices on the sole of the socks that there are crushed leaf debris. Moist also sees what appears to be Tom's hooded sweatshirt, which is also exhibiting areas of leaf debris. All the items are collected and cataloged. Moist then moves to the kitchen area, and in the northwestern corner of the kitchen area, a stainless steel and gray plastic Faberware knife block is located. Moist observes six stainless steel and gray accented steak knives and one black-handled kitchen shear. He immediately recognizes that there are four steak knives missing, in addition to a missing utility knife, all of which seem to match the knives that are sticking out of both Tom and Shirley's necks. The bastard used knives from the house, Moist thinks to himself. Moise, who is a native Minnesotan and who had joined OPD some nine years earlier and had been promoted to the Homicide Division in 2005, was regarded as a meticulous and calculated cop. And he wonders if the person who killed these two people in a premeditated fashion, meaning that he came to the house with the sole intent of killing whoever was there, then why in the hell does he not come armed with his own weapon? It just doesn't add up. His mind is racing as he's trying to make sense of it all. With that, the knife block is tagged, photographed, collected, and cataloged. Moist then moves to the formal dining area and located atop the formal dining table at its southeast corner is a stack of magazines. On top of these magazines, Moist sees yet another one of the Faber brand stainless steel and gray kitchen knives just sitting there. Could it be that there had been more than one intruder? Why would one intruder be walking around with four knives all from the home? This knife measures 13 inches overall with an eight inch blade. He doesn't notice that there is any blood residue on the blade. It apparently wasn't used to kill. However, it still may have evidentiary value, namely a fingerprint. The knife is collected and cataloged. Immediately beneath said knife is a March 2008 issue of Gourmet Magazine. Oddly, while the knife itself didn't appear to have any blood on it, the magazine cover does seem to have areas of suspected blood. Moist directs the text to process the magazine as well. Maybe... Just maybe, that's the killer's blood, he thinks to himself. Moist takes a deep breath and moves to the southeast corner of the formal dining room, where he locates a deceased adolescent white male, approximately 11 years of age, five feet in height and weighing approximately 95 pounds. Now, if the following seems like it's a very formal description of the crime scene, that's because it is. 
The following observations come directly from Moise's report from that awful day. The victim is observed to have shoulder-length brown curly hair. He notices that the victim is also wearing knee-length black nylon Adidas shorts with white stripes running vertically down the seams. He also notices that the decedent appears to be wearing at least two pair of what appear to be boxer-type underwear. The outer pair appears to be blue plaid print, and the inner pair appears to be orange and gray plaid print. Moist notices that the victim is lying in a north-to-south orientation with the victim's head facing towards the north, while the victim's feet are oriented south. He also observes that the victim's head is turned facing the decedent's right side. The victim's face is lying on its left side, exposing the decedent's right cheek. He sees areas of suspected blood throughout the victim's right ear and cheek area, as well as areas of suspected blood throughout the decedent's hair and right temple area. Moise observes that the victim's arms are extended south, laying at his side, with both left and right palms facing up. Moist detects that the decedent has bare feet and that the decedent's left foot is crossed atop his right foot, as if it was staged that way by the killer. After the young boy was killed, did the killer feel remorse after slaying the child? Moist also observes a stainless steel and gray accented knife handle protruding from the right side of the decedent's neck. Moist then discerns that the aforementioned knife handle appears to be seated all the way to the handle as the blade is obscured from view. A swab of the exterior knife handle located in the victim is collected and cataloged. Moist also notices located on the exterior black short sleeve t-shirt worn by the victim throughout the decedent's back area, an unidentified substance, apparently biological in nature, which appears to be of a mucus type consistency. A swab of the unidentified substance is collected and cataloged. Moist notes in his report that in order to protect the integrity of the aforementioned unidentified substance, the back panel of the shirt was removed at the scene. Moist also locates an apparent hair fiber on the decedent's lower back, which is collected and cataloged. He also observes on the palm side or anterior side of the victim's left forearm what appears to be a smear of suspected blood located between the victim's left arm and the victim's torso is yet another of the stainless steel Faberware steak knives. This one measures approximately nine inches overall with an approximate five inch blade. The knife is also collected and cataloged. And finally, immediately north of the victim's head, a pair of bronze and brown framed prescription eyeglasses are collected from the area rug and cataloged. These are, of course, Tommy's glasses. Moise takes a step back and feels a mixture of nausea and rage building up inside of himself, which, of course, he internalizes because that's what cops do. As he continues to stare at the small, lifeless boy that lies before him, he thinks, what in the fuck is going on here? 
Who could do this to a kid? These are questions that at this exact moment in time, Derek Moyes commits himself to finding the answers to, at all costs. At this point, Moyes needs to catch his breath and gather his thoughts, and so do we, as the investigation continues on the next episode of Defense Diaries. Hey guys, quick reminder that we will be at CrimeCon in beautiful Las Vegas, Nevada from April 28th through May 1st. Also, we're going to be putting some meetups together with some other amazing creators at either Bally's or Paris. We'll keep you updated on those appearances on our socials, so make sure to follow us at Defense Diaries on Facebook and Instagram to stay in the know. Also, make sure to mark your calendars to be in Dallas on August 26th through the 28th for the True Crime Podcast Festival. There are a ton of great shows and creators registered to appear. So treat yourself to a weekend of murder and mayhem, or at least a weekend of talking about murder and mayhem. You should get your early bird tickets right now, and all the info you'll ever need is located at truecrimepodcastvessel.com. Listener.